0: We turn again in our series on the book of Ephesians Uh, this morning, however, to the third chapter beginning with verse 1, Ephesians chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. Last time, you will recall, we looked again at the the positional blessings that every believer has in union with Christ, and especially took up those architectural images that the Apostle conjured for us in uh, chapter 2. Those are great themes, they really are. And now we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and Paul's language is thick as usual. I really love it. And uh, we can't touch on everything, but uh, I hope that we will have a clear understanding of the meaning of the text. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, but let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we humble ourselves under the authority of your word. And if there is anyone at all who, in his or her pride, would exalt himself above your word, we pray that even at this moment we would compare and contrast ourselves with your majesty and that we would say, Lord, remove that pride and give to me a heart of submission. We as your people are called to live under the word until Christ, the living word, the one who was incarnate for us, who died for our sins and rose again, until he comes again, we are to live under this word. And so we pray that we will happily live under the authority of your word, that we will test everything by it, that we will, rather than being influenced by the spirit of the age, will be influenced by what you tell us and teach us in your holy word, the Bible. Help us, therefore, as your people to give our hearts and minds attention to it, and we pray that you will conform our minds and hearts to this truth and to the image of your own Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ephesians, the third chapter, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart. Over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I'm so very glad that in God's providence, before some of us go to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, that we come to this text in which we see Paul the Apostle once again dwelling upon the the glory of what it means to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. It's clear from Ephesians and from all of Paul's epistles that he was preoccupied with the church. He loved the church. He labored and toiled for the church. He was amazed that he himself was a member of the church of Jesus Christ. To Paul, serving the church was a very special thing. It was the greatest of privileges because the Lord of the church is wonderful and died for the church. It was a privilege also because Paul knew the church to be unique and special. And that's where we want to dwell as we look at this text this morning. Someone may say, Well, what's so special about the church? Well, there are many things that we could answer from the Bible, but in this text, we see several answers to that question What's so special about the church? So that's our angle on the text. What's so special about the church? And let's now answer the question. From this passage. The first thing that is special about the church is this. We have a special union, a special union. And this is underscored in the first seven verses. Paul's commitment to Gentile freedom in Christ had cost him his own personal freedom. As he spread the gospel to the Gentiles, now he writes, having been in custody for five years, and he tells us it was for you Gentiles that I have been imprisoned. So humanly he is Nero's prisoner, yet he is in reality the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ Joyfully bound to him by faith. Here we see, of course, the amazing transforming power of the gospel. Paul had been the enemy of the church, the destroyer of the church, but he met the ascended Jesus on the Damascus road, and now he is poured out like a drink offering for the church, a willing bondservant of the risen Christ. And in serving the church, he tells us that he is a steward of the mystery. Now, there's much to be said about this word steward, but simply to say that he has been thinking about a household and a steward is a steward over the house. And God has given to him this special ministry of making known what once was a mystery but is now revealed. Something once that was secret but now is made known and he is proclaiming openly that which has been revealed. So, what is now revealed that once was secret? Well he tells us in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What then is the mystery revealed? That Gentile Christians who believe are co-heirs in one body and fellow sharers of the promise with believing Jews. This is the special union, union with Christ, yielding union one with another. That had been hidden from past ages. Now the Old Testament did speak of Gentiles and their inclusion in the church. It did speak about Gentiles coming to know the Lord and nations being brought in. What was newly revealed, however, was Gentile status on an equal footing with believing Jews. The fullness of Gentile participation in the blessing of knowing Christ on an equal footing with Jews, that had not been revealed prior to the New Testament era. Who would have dreamt that one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells would indwell not only believing Jews, but also believing Gentiles? Do you remember verse 12 of the second chapter? He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Everything is different now. And Jew and Gentile believing in Christ are one. Now if you sit here this morning indifferently to this, If you say, well, I've heard this before, or maybe this isn't so important to me, if you sit indifferently to this, let me tell you, Paul did not. If you yawn over it, let me assure you that it is so stupendous that Paul could not get over it. What would it take for a Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus, to not only realize that Gentiles could be a part of God's people, but on an equal footing with believing Jews? It took the death of Christ. It took the shed blood of your Savior to bring this about. To remove the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and to make a believing Jew and Gentile one new humanity in Christ. That's what he's preached to us in chapter 2. The cross of Christ made Jewish and Gentile believers one and broke down the barrier that had separated us. Think of it this way. Imagine that there is a pocket of heaven, the truth that is revealed to Israel about God and His truth and His salvation. Imagine then there's this pocket of heaven, and then all around that pocket is the hell deserving Gentile world. And now imagine that heaven, like a volcano, breaks its borders and flows over the world like lava, not with noxious gases but with the aroma of grace. That's what the mystery revealed means. That God is at work among the populations of the world. Arabs and Europeans and people from every climate and every nationality. God is at work among the populations of the world to bring the nations to himself and Jew and Gentile on equal footing. And so he sent Paul the Apostle to win the nations, preaching the gospel of union with Christ on equal footing, accepted through his righteousness. And Paul spent years in terrible circumstances, in pain, in suffering, in shipwreck, with beatings, and finally in death under the hand of the emperor. And why? Because he wanted the gospel to come down to you who were sitting in these pews this morning. And how did Paul view himself in all of this? Verse 8, he says, I was the least of the saints. I'm just doing what God has called me to do. But I was the persecutor. I am the least of the saints. And am now privileged to preach that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. So what's so special about the church? What's so special, first of all, about the church is that we have a special union with Christ and one another, Jew and Gentile, believing in Christ, received and accepted on equal footing. And don't think abstractly about this, because you are those Gentiles of whom Paul speaks in this passage You are those Gentiles for whom the Savior gave his life. You are the ones who have been accepted through the righteousness of Christ through his shed blood. And so the glory and wonder of it all is that God has accepted illegal aliens, Gentiles into his kingdom. Our country may have to debate the relative importance of a closed border to the south, but there can be no border patrols in the church of Jesus Christ. That is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background has been. It doesn't matter how deep your sin has been. There are no border patrols in Christ's church. If you trust in Christ, you are His and have a right to all of the privileges of the sons of God. So that the old categories, in terms of spiritual privilege of Jew or Gentile or bond or free, male or female, we all have the same privileges in Christ who put our trust in him. God accepts illegal aliens because Christ became the illegal alien who died on the cross in the place of illegal aliens like you and like me. And so there's a new humanity. Once we were spiritually dead, we were conformed to the vile practices of the world, we were enslaved to Satan and sin, we were condemned under God's wrath, we were captive to this present evil age, we were Christless, with no citizenship among God's people, friendless, hopeless, godless, alienated from God and from His people, but no longer because you have been received in Christ which also means that we are to receive one another in this congregation as those who have been accepted on equal footing with us who believe in Jesus Christ and that we should labor to remove every barrier that has already been torn down by the cross of Jesus Christ. So what's so special about the church? The union that we have with one another in the church by virtue of what Christ has done. The second thing that is special about the church, according to this text, is that the church has a special purpose, and that purpose is to make Christ known. Now, I would say that's special, wouldn't you? And we find it in verses 8 through 11. Let's read these verses again. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Apostle says, God has made me a minister. My purpose then is to make known the unsearchable riches of Christ, he says in verse 8. Someone has translated that the fathomless wealth of Christ. By the way, have you noticed in Ephesians how often the Apostle Paul uses the term rich or riches? In Ephesians 1.7, the riches of His grace... In Ephesians 1.18, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. In Ephesians 2.4, God is rich in mercy. In Ephesians 3.8, the passage we've read, the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Ephesians 3.16, the riches of His glory. If we turn to the twin epistle of Colossians, Colossians 1.27, the riches of the glory of this mystery... Colossians 2.2, the riches of full assurance. Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If there's anything Paul wants to make plain to us believers, it is that we are rich people. That all that is in Christ belongs to us. Every spiritual blessing belongs to God's people in Christ. And Paul says, my privilege is to go into the world and make known these unfathomable riches of Christ. Making this Christ known, his wealth known in verse 8 to the Gentiles, in verse 9 to all men. But then he says, for the purpose of the church, making him known to angelic beings. Did you catch that? Look at verse 10. There he says, well let's go back to verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that you, the church, might make him known to cosmic powers. Now that's something to contemplate, isn't it? That it's your privilege, your privilege, to manifest to angelic beings the iridescent wisdom of God. That's what Paul says. The church's service, the church's privilege, is to show the full sweep of God's wisdom. Literally in verse 10, the word means many-colored. It was a word used to describe the colors of flowers or woven carpets, the varied forms of God's wisdom. The multifarious, beautifully colored wisdom of God. It is your privilege to make known, Paul says, to angelic rulers and authorities in the heavenly sphere. The church's assignment, that's us here, the church's assignment is to intangible things and intangible realms, Ephesians 6, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Now I ask you, does this not immediately upgrade your doctrine of the church and your place in it? Heavenly intelligences contemplate what God is doing through the church and seeing his divine wisdom in your lives. That's what he says. Martin Lloyd-Jones beautifully illustrates it. The church is a kind of prism that is placed in the path of the light to break up whiteness into the colors of the spectrum. So the multicolored Wisdom of the church is seen as you, the church, is held up to the divine light and the angelic being sees all of the greatness of the wisdom, the colorful blessings that God bestows upon his people. Is there not joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and becomes a part of his people? Imagine the angels all the way back to the time, say, of Abraham. Look, 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 they were thinking. Look at what God is doing Look at this covenant that God has made. Look, look, look at what God is doing in the Mosaic economy through the sacrifices. Look at God's wisdom here. Look at what He's doing through David. Look at what He has done through the cross. Who ever could have imagined such wisdom being displayed as is seen in the shed blood of the Son of God, whom we have worshiped from eternity because He is God the Son? Look, look at the wisdom that is displayed in the resurrection. Doesn't Peter in 1 Peter say angels desire to look on these things? All the way. To Covenant Presbyterian Church sitting here this morning, and you think you're living a humdrum life perhaps, or perhaps in your suffering you don't see a lot of wisdom in it, but the angels are looking and they're saying, my, my, look how God is displaying His wisdom. Look at that, look at that, look at that. Look at this person and that person. Amazing what God is doing. You know, heaven's no dull place. I don't know what your view of it is. But even now the angelic beings are looking on your lives and they are seeing the many colored, the manifold wisdom, the iridescent wisdom of God being played out in the lives of you Christians who sit here this morning and they are amazed because the church is a theater for angels. Or to change the metaphor, McKay puts it this way, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. They're learning about the character of God as they observe what God is doing in your life here in the church. So when we think of the church, sometimes we're drowsy or dreary or angry or disgruntled or dissatisfied. The angels are in wonderment. Just knowing this should elevate our view of the church. And think through passages. Just think on your own. Think of those passages in which, for example, Paul says to Timothy that he is being charged in the presence of the holy angels. Have you ever puzzled about that passage that uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 deals with uh, a woman's hair being her covering and that uh, she, is not to, she is not to remove that covering because of the angels? What does that mean? Well, it means her hair was a symbol of her submission to her husband and because of the angels. That is, the angels are looking on. They're saying, Look at that woman. Look Look how she is submissive to her husband. My, what wisdom is shown here. My, what a redeemed woman she is. Yes, the angels are looking at our lives, the Bible tells us. And the church is a theater for angels. Mr. MacArthur, I don't reference him often, but he said something like, angels see God's power in creation, his wrath at Sinai, his love at Calvary, but wisdom is on display in the church. God is the teacher, the universe is the classroom, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the lesson is the wisdom. And when it is taught well by a church, the angels glorify God. Well, I want to know that I'm living a life that when angels look at me, they can say they're seeing God's wisdom. Do you want to live that way? God has created the church to make known his manifold wisdom. What incredible dignity is ours. The end of creation is redemption and we are privileged to know it and to show it. And the purpose of the church is to make Christ known to the world. Yes, but also to be a theater for angels. That they may see the wisdom of God being displayed in your heart and in your life and in your service. I think that's amazing and that makes the church special doesn't it? Yes? Yes. Thirdly, we have a special resource. The church has a special resource. What's so special about the church? We have a special resource and we see it in verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. We have free access to God. And notice in chapter 2 verse 18 that Paul has said something similar. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here he says we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. Free access. Now the word boldness that is used here means free or frank speech. Imagine being able to come into God's presence with free and frank speech speech the verb form of the word was sometimes used of coming into the presence of a ruler or of a judgment seat without fear without shame without judgment just come and he uses a present active indicative we have it is something that is right there in your lives right now we have this privilege of coming boldly into the presence of God through our faith in Christ In fulfilling this great servant role, Paul knew and we know that we are not left to ourselves, that we have access to God's presence and throne, that we are reconciled and the welcome is completely unrestrained to any believer in Christ because believer, if you're a true believer in Christ, God will never mount the judgment seat to condemn you but will always receive you with loving arms and all of God's people have the privilege. So I ask you, Are you exercising that privilege of boldly coming into the presence of God through your faith in Christ Jesus and making your petitions and requests known, praying for the church especially and for the world? You know, this was a bombshell for the Jew. Access? Well, access was once per year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest entered the most holy place. But no, the atonement has been made once for all through Jesus. The pathway into the throne room is sprinkled with blood, and the Father's loving arms are open wide to welcome you. Come, come, come boldly into his presence with frank speech through your Savior. Jesus Christ. You know, I have a line from a poem here. I was just reminded recently in uh, an article in Christianity Today. Kind of a strange magazine nowadays. But um, there's an article on The revival of interest in the poetry of George Herbert and I'm very glad for that and it reminded me of a poem that uh, I I went to and looked up and the name of the poem you may have read or may not have is The Bag I won't read the entire poem it's a beautiful thing, it represents the incarnation of our Lord in the most beautiful, beautiful language but then it says this Christ having come into the world through Bethlehem Then Herbert's poem, The Bag, says this. But as he, that is Christ, as he was returning, there came one that ran upon him with a spear. He who came hither all alone, bringing nor man, nor arms, nor fear, received the blow upon his side. And straight he turned, and to his brethren cried, If ye have anything to send or write, I have no bag, but here is room." Unto my Father's hands and sight, believe me, it shall safely come, that I shall mind what you impart. Look, you may put it very near my heart. And if that's the first time you've heard the poem and you didn't catch all of the symbolism, it's truly beautiful and very simple. Christ doesn't have a bag in which he collects your petitions and your requests. He has a hole in his side because of a spear that was thrust through. And he says, you can put your petition and request right there near my heart. Huh? Is that not profound? That's what he means. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. You just take that request You put it very near his heart. Because he's bought you with his blood, he won't turn you away. Now that's the very, very special resource that we have as a church. To come into the presence of God through Christ and to know that through his shed blood, every request is there right near his heart. Nobody else has that. The world doesn't have that. You have it. This church has it because of what Christ has done. But let me also point out that the church is special because we have a special attitude. A special attitude. It's not grumbling. It's not complaining. It's not anger. It's it's a special attitude. It's found here in verse 13. Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And here we have the suffering role of the church. And we are taught that suffering is ordained not only for Paul, but of course for the whole church and Christians, just as it was ordained for our Savior. And suffering plays a huge part in the Christian life. It is through our weakness that God shows his strength. It is through our weakness that God shows a testimony to the world of his character. The role of the church in this world is like her masters who came to give his life a servant's role. We are a theater that displays God's wisdom, yes, even in the midst of our suffering in this world. And so Paul says, Here I am, I am in custody. I've been in custody for five years. Is this a failure? Is the gospel somehow bound? No, no, Paul is suffering for the church. And he's saying essentially this If my trials had no purpose, you would have reason to be discouraged. But God has ordained my trials, and you have no right to be discouraged. My sufferings are your glory, he says. It looks like abject failure in the eyes of the world, but you have the eyes of faith. You see differently than the world. My chains to Christ supersede my chains to Nero. So here's the encouragement. Here's the special attitude that we have as a church. Paul says, Do not lose heart. In verse 13, he says that. Do not lose heart. Do not become limp, lazy, depressed. Learn to look on your troubles in a God-centered way. God is working his purpose out even as he leads you home. And that's the special attitude of God's people. Paul and the church. The church has the right purchased through Jesus' blood. You have the right not to be discouraged. Do not lose heart. The Bible calls this hope. Living life now in light of the promise of a future inheritance. The suffering of the church in persecution is not all that Paul has in mind, but it's a lot of what he has in mind. And I would remind us that this is not a thing of the past, that we could turn this morning to the Sudan, to Nigeria, to Iran, to North Korea and yes even to the United States of America and find suffering persecuted christians but of course in all of our suffering holiness is the goal to which the lord is leading us even in persecution and other hardships so that we read in acts 14:22 through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god and god is conforming us to the image of his son according to romans 8:28 and 29 you know, one of my teachers, Edmund Clowney, put it this way, our deepest needs drive us to our deepest beliefs. Our deepest needs drive us to our deepest beliefs. How often in trouble and trial and tribulation and through suffering, sometimes I have felt overwhelmed and yet I been, have been able by grace to say to the Lord, I know where my ultimate commitment lies. This has only served... To show in sharp relief what I really believe, the one in whom I really do trust. And our Lord taught Peter that he must suffer before he entered into his glory. So the question is not will I suffer, it is how and with what heart. And Paul in verse 13 focuses upon his own suffering for the church and he says, It is your glory. Literally translated, is your glory, their glory and not their disgrace. And he asks them not to lose heart. Paul also encouraged the church in Corinth in the same way in chapter 4 of Second Corinthians when he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the special attitude to which Paul calls them. Do not lose heart. And you have a right to that because of Jesus' shed blood, His resurrection from the dead, and His promise to you of an eternal inheritance. So in this text, we see that the church is special. What makes the church special? We have a special union. All of those for whom Christ died, united to Jesus by faith, united to one another. We see a special purpose The church is a theater to make Christ known, even to angelic beings. The church has a special resource free, bold access to the Father through Christ and His Spirit. And the church has a special attitude. You have the right to hope. So I ask you do you see the church this way? What changes in your heart do these truths demand of you? Where in your love for Christ and his church do you need to change and believe and repent and grow? Is it in the area of promoting the unity that is ours in Christ? Is it in serving others? Perhaps in helping to provide a better theater for angels to observe? Or maybe in making more use of the free, bold access that is purchased by Jesus' shed blood in prayer provided through the cross. For some, it's having an attitude of hope in the midst of many trials. Really believing that the Lord has given you a future so secure that you can live in that security now. Whatever the area, go to the Lord And earnestly ask Him to change your heart. The church is special. Special because she is purchased with Jesus' own blood. And that's why we contend for her. That's why we pray for her. That's why we love her. That's why we seek to serve her. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. Dear as the apple of thine eye and graven on thy hand. God's people said, Amen.